Tell was 27 years old when he survived the Las Vegas shooting in October 2017, the worst mass shooting in modern American history. 58 people were killed and over 800 more were injured, either by gunfire or in the ensuing chaos. Tell was a Navy veteran who moved back to his hometown after serving. During the day, he worked at a car dealership, and at night, he worked part-time as a security guard at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California. During the Las Vegas shooting, Tell helped others escape as bullets rained down from above. Afterwards, he made a pact with a friend and fellow survivor. If they ever found themselves in a similar situation again, they would do what Tell had done in Vegas and run back in to help. A little more than a year after the Las Vegas massacre, Tell was hanging out at the borderline with friends when a shooter equipped with a semi-automatic pistol and seven large-capacity magazines burst inside. Once again, Tell helped others get out, and then he ran back in. Tell was one of 12 people who lost their lives that night. That tragic story and the others in this podcast are from Giffords.org. Giffords is an organization dedicated to saving lives from gun violence. It is led by former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. They inspire the courage of people from all walks of life to make America safer. This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Bullet Points, Part 2, Approach. Welcome back to E-Impulse. We are in part two of our series on firearm injury prevention with the amazing Dr. Amy Barnhorst and the UC Davis Bullet Points Project. And because we know gun violence is a multidisciplinary thing, we also partnered with Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a UC Davis pediatric trauma surgeon and host of the Country Hits podcast. All right, let's jump into the interview, Sarah. I like a good framework. I need something to be able to hang these facts onto and help me remember the things that I need to do. And bullet points created approach, assess, act, right? So that's going to be our framework for this podcast in particular. And part of approach is looking at ourselves and knowing the things that we need to be prepared as we approach these conversations, right? Amy, what are some things that physicians and clinicians need to ask about their local area as they prepare to ask these questions? So one of the components of the approach is to be informed. And that means not just about firearms and gun owners, but what are your local policies? What laws are available in your state? Because if you are in a certain situation and you want to make a particular recommendation, like temporarily transferring the gun out of somebody's home in a time of crisis, you don't want to suggest that to a patient if you're in a state where oh, whoops, if you're going to do that, you have to have the person get a background check. And now you just advised your patient to do something illegal and put their helpful neighbor in jeopardy of having a firearm illegally. So you want to know what of the potential tools and laws are available in your area and in your state, and also what sorts of support teams are available. Like if there's a mass shooting threat, do you have a threat assessment team that is involved with your school district or wherever this threat is taking place? Or what kinds of protective orders can you apply for in your state? And how do firearms play into those orders? Are there removal policies for domestic violence restraining orders, for example? And can they find the answers to those state-specific questions in any one spot, or where would they go to find the answers to those questions? 
The Bullet Points website has a lot of this information for California. The Giffords Law Center website actually has some great state-by-state policy pages that you can look at and see what are the extreme risk protection or red flag law policies by state, what are the background check requirements by state, things like that. Yeah, and that's super helpful, right? I have to remember the blood supply of the pancreas and like how do I right. like fit in like right. all this new world because right. it is it's a new world. Like I I wasn't trained in medical school no. not that long ago about like how to get involved in these sort of public health campaigns and specifically around gun violence. Are there any like key things you think doctors need to know in order to begin to approach this in a, the rigorous way that you've designed with bullet points? I think one of the biggest first steps for people is actually a searching moral inventory of your own biases about firearms and firearm owners and having guns in the home and really examining what you bring to the clinical encounter that is judgmental or political that may come out in subtle ways in that interaction and be counterproductive to your patient's health and safety. And part of that is understanding that, you know, one in three households in the U.S. has a gun in it. There's a lot of firearms out there in circulation, and you don't necessarily know who are going to be the firearm owners and who are not. Especially now since COVID, the demographic has changed so much that we all kind of have this idea. It's like a rural, older, white male who lives in the South or some, you know, area in Northern California. But more and more people of color, women, Democrats, self-identified liberals are buying firearms. and we have these biases, we have these prejudices, and then we maybe judge people because we know statistics. We've had, as you said, children's blood on your shoes. And we maybe judge them for, in our minds, putting their family at risk. But having an understanding of what their belief system is and putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about, what would I do if I really believed that my family was in danger and this was the thing that was going to protect them and maybe save their lives? And that's really hard for some people, but I think it's really important. Carrie graduated law school and was planning his wedding. Though Carrie grappled with a chronic pain condition, he was known as a positive person. A few weeks after his graduation, he bought a gun and killed himself. A receipt found near his body indicated that he had bought the gun within an hour of his death. His family didn't think he had ever fired one before. What do physicians and clinicians need to know about the guns themselves? Like, I don't have a catalog of experience with firearms, but what do I need to know as I approach these conversations? I think it's helpful to have a general working sense of what is a rifle? What is a pistol? What is a shotgun? You don't really need to know how to, like, disassemble and reassemble a (laughs) (laughs) semi-automatic firearm. Don't worry. But just being able to, like, converse about it. The same way you have to know what is a swimming pool, what is a gate, what is a fence, what is a latch, what is a lock. You want to be able to have these discussions and not just be throwing out words that are meaningless to you. And I think where it really comes into play is, for example, when you're talking about safe storage. And if you want to advise somebody, like, hey, there's biometric lock boxes that can do this, or there's cable locks that can do this, you want to know what you're running the cable lock through and where the trigger lock goes on the gun and what kind of gun it might be appropriate for. Those are the kinds of things you can pretty quickly learn in, say, one session at a range. So one thing we've done is our team has gone out a few times to the range here in Sacramento and done firearms instruction. 
shot all different kinds of guns, loaded different types of ammunition, taken things apart, put them back together, put different locks on stuff. And it's been really helpful to just have that, you know, the physical handling experience of firearms. I remember back in my own childhood, right before I had a lot of kids' blood on my shoes, having a great time going out shooting with my grandfather. And like, it was a bonding experience. It was really great. And then, you know, I've had these experiences that have turned me so hard against anything that leads to another kid coming to the emergency room with a bullet hole. That it's hard for me to keep that, what I guess is politics, out of mm-hmm. the conversation, right? Because what you really want to do is, like, grab people by the collar and say, like, come <laughs> with me to the OR and let me show you right. what this does. And part of me thinks, like, yeah, we should, we should do more of that. We should show pictures. We should show what happens to someone who's been shot and survived because they don't get better. So, you know, I'm very passionate about that. But I recognize that, like, I need to be careful about how that enters into the conversation. How do you draw that line? How do you draw the line between the trying to explain the implications of what happens if this goes badly with, you know, being perceived as alarmist or, like, deeply political and turning people off? I mean, it is always a hard balance. And I think the best you can do is just be really aware of where that threshold is and and have a good sense of when you're nudging up against it to back off. Because the bottom line is, even if your statistics are accurate and that having a gun in the home, as all the research shows, puts everyone in the home at risk of various types of injury and death, that is all, as far as we know, true. But if your big picture goal is to keep your patient and their family safe, giving them that information may actually be, and this is hard to understand, but may actually be counterproductive. You know, because you may just be offending their very personhood, their identity, their culture. And so knowing when to kind of back that off and meet in the middle and maybe even kind of appear more flexible on the topic than you are. But being able to open up a discussion with them is the most important thing at that point. But it's really hard when you know what you know and when you've seen what you've seen. Danny had been with the father of her children for six years when he shot her five times at Point Blank Range. Before the shooting, he had become increasingly territorial and had threatened to hurt her, noting that he could easily get a gun on the street. Immediately after those threats, she got a restraining order. On December 23, 2002, Danny picked up her daughters, who were then two and four years old. When she arrived home, the girl's father said hi to the children before physically lifting Danny up and trying to put her into a nearby van. When she started screaming, he shot her twice. She fell to the ground and he shot her three more times. Today, he's in prison, but someday he will get out, a fact that haunts Danny. Danny lives with shrapnel in her lower back, which causes significant pain, and in her right thigh, which is numb to the touch. She suffers from severe PTSD. Loud noises terrify her, and she's triggered by the smell of fire or smoke, which reminds her of the bullets burning her abdomen. I love the idea of being comfortable with the vernacular, right? Of like being able to talk to someone about guns and and make it clear that you know what they are and you know what the right. pieces are and and you sort of respect that it's some people's real area of expertise and interest yeah. and, and passion. Is there any particular words or phrases or like specific concepts that you think people should really avoid or specifically engage on? 
you know, just your story about like going out shooting with your grandfather. That would be a great opening for a patient, right? Like, hey, I get it. Like, I have these great memories around guns when I was a kid. And I sometimes tell people that too. Like, I used to hunt when I was really little with my dad and my grandpa. And it was like a fun family thing that we did. And it was like really cool when I was old enough to, you know, shoot my own gun. We'd go skeet shooting. And I understand that was a small part of our family life, but I understand that that was a big part of your family life, how hard it would be to give up. And so being able to to not just remember your feelings around it, but also communicate to someone like, hey, I, I do sort of get it, I see. But there's something else I know now too, and that is what kid's blood looks like on my shoes. And that has really changed my mind. And so I want to share with you a little bit about that. Knowing a little bit of, as you said, the vernacular, what to say and what not to say can be really helpful in you know, not sounding a little bit like a dimwit to your patients that you're trying to connect with. We often say firearm instead of gun, although gun is sort of appropriate. Firearm is the more technical term. Being able to talk about the various parts as they relate to things like self-storage. So the trigger, the magazine, the, you know, the safety of a gun. We often hear people talk about gun safety in terms of a movement to make people safer from firearm injury. But to firearm owners, the gun safety is a part of the gun that makes the gun not be able to fire. And so we've kind of moved away from that term into firearm injury prevention, which is, you know, at its base, what we're all about. Being aware that, you know, because it could be a touchy subject, saying words like revoke or take away or impinge on your rights, we're taking away your Second Amendment rights, we're going to revoke your firearm access, we're going to confiscate, confiscate, seize your guns, (laughs) all good things to not say. Right. And saying things like instead... We want to put some time and space between you and your gun temporarily during this crisis, making it very risk-based, making it time-limited, making it specific to a certain risk, like don't drive while you're on this medication. Let's get the guns out of your house while you're going through this bad divorce. Taking, moving things out of the house, kind of more soft language that doesn't have to do with involuntary, I am taking this from you kind of sentiments. Or like, your kid is stunningly coordinated and brilliantly athletic. <laughs> you better be sure your guns are somewhere really safe because yes, no, you can't exactly. believe how, how good a climber your yes, kid is going to yes, be, right? Exactly. <laughs> Amy, what are the goals with these conversations? It doesn't sound like it's no guns anywhere in the house, but maybe intelligent, modified, personal advice. But what would you say is the goal of these conversations even in general? I would say the goal of these conversations in general, and this is true for, you know, most of the recommendations and the interventions we do in medicine, is not to get risk to zero, although I like that idea of always trying to put ourselves out of a job, but to turn the needle down a little bit, to dial it back. Better to take a harm reduction approach and reduce some of the risk than make a recommendation that will reduce all of the risk that nobody will listen to. For example, the recommendation that would reduce almost all of the risk for a family would be like, get all the guns out of the house. Don't go to the shooting range. Don't buy any more guns. Put them all somewhere else. Just don't have guns. Probably not going to be well-received by a lot of families who own a lot of firearms. A harm reduction approach would be, hey, let's talk about which guns you have, why you have them, how often you use them, which ones you need quick access to, which ones can be stored in your storage unit in a safe off the property. Okay, you really feel strongly that you need a handgun for protection available in your home. 
maybe not the best thing to have on your nightstand. I know you want it at the ready or on that, you know, shelf in your closet that your kid can climb to. Let's talk about a biometric lockbox. Yeah, it's going to cost you a second and a half to get your fingerprints on there and open the box. You can keep your gun inside loaded, which is not the safest storage option, but it might make somebody feel better about having it totally ready to go. You can keep it loaded, but in the lockbox in the nightstand drawer. So then your kids can't access it, can't fire it, but it's still there. So kind of taking that really individualized, like, who's in the home? What are they at risk of? What kind of guns do you have? Why do you have them? What steps are you willing to take to just reduce that risk as much as possible? That's a good harm reduction approach rather than saying, like, get them all out. I think we often, as physicians, go in and are going to say, we're here to cure your cancer. We're here right. to, like, take out your take appendix. Take out your appendix, right? <laughs> like, we're going, like, it's binary, right? Like, yeah. you've got the disease, we'll you don't it. have the disease. And if you yeah. have the disease, we're going to fix the disease. But right. the reality is it's so much more individual and so much grayer, right? Especially when you're a psychiatrist, not a surgeon. Yeah. I was just going to say, <laughs> that right, is the surgeon the time. in Yeah, totally. <laughs> I wish I could fix just one thing. <laughs> yeah, I think taking that approach, right? I think the psychiatric approach of saying like, okay, we're going to shift the needle. Yeah, we're going right? to make it a little better. We're going to like take the probability cloud more yeah. towards safety yes. and away from danger. Absolutely, because we're never, that I can imagine, going to have one of those all-country buybacks where we get rid of everyone's guns. Thirteen-year-old Brooklyn was president of her elementary school, an honor roll student, violinist, runner, and award-winning gymnast. She loved animals and frequently rescued stray dogs, giving them the care she brought to everything in her life. On June 4, 2013, Brooklyn went over to her best friend's house after a half-day at school. When Brooklyn's father arrived to pick her up, she was struggling for air, choking on her body fluid. A hollow-point bullet had entered her back and ripped through her body before exiting her chest. She didn't survive. Brooklyn died because of an unsecured gun in her best friend's home. No charges were filed, and her death was ruled an accident. There was no accountability for the owner who stored their gun where a child could easily access it. Check. To prepare for these conversations, first, take a look at your own beliefs and biases. Second, learn about your community's beliefs, regulations, and resources. Third, try to find a common ground between your own desire for patient safety and the patient's needs and beliefs. That is where change will occur. The goal is harm reduction, not necessarily gun elimination. Last, keep listening to this series and go to the Bullet Points Project website in the show notes to learn more. Harm reduction, not elimination. I like that. Yeah, we use this approach in a lot of other ways, for example, with patients who are battling drug addiction, but it's a real shift in the approach for addressing risk related to firearms. And because this is a bit of a paradigm shift, I hope that everyone finds this helpful. And I encourage all of you guys to help us spread the word by sharing this episode with a colleague who can join you in firearm-related injury harm reduction and keep listening as we dive in deep with Bullet Points Project. Thank you to the UC Davis Emergency Department for working to reduce our own community's firearm-related injuries, not just sewing up bullet holes, but doing something about it. 
And thank you to OM Productions for doing our own harm reduction. See y'all next time.